Good afternoon. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thrilled to have you here. My name is Jamie Boskett. I have the privilege of serving as the president and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society. And uh, just really pleased to see such a wonderful turnout today at your Virginia Museum of History and Culture and here in the Robbins Family Forum for another in our wonderful series of banner lectures on a particularly um, uh, riveting topic today and a great speaker that we're thrilled to have. Uh, I would like to share just a brief announcement of our next lecture to make sure you all come back and see us again. And while I'm doing so, take this moment, if you would, and check your cell phone to make sure that we don't have any noise interruptions throughout today's talk. Our next banner lecture will take place right here in the Robbins Family Forum on Thursday, August 29th, so just around the corner. That, of course, will be at noon as well, just as this one is. And that day, we'll welcome Alexander Barnes, uh, who will deliver a banner lecture entitled Play Ball, America's Doughboys and the National Pastime in the Great War. So for all you baseball fans, we're getting to the end of the season. This will be a great refresher for you. Uh, today's program, uh, as I said, we are particularly honored and thrilled to have a dear friend and uh, remarkable expert to speak to us. Dr. Spencer Crew is the interim director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, but this, his role at the Smithsonian is certainly not new, and uh, his work in public uh, education and public museum settings is certainly not new. For some 25 years, Spencer uh, served as both the president of the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center, and then for a majority of that period, uh, leading the National Museum of American History. He is well known to the Historical Society also because of his recent service, on uh, which he sat on our advisory committee, which helped form our uh, wonderful exhibition upstairs, Determined, The 400-Year Struggle for Black Equality. And if you haven't taken time to see that exhibit, uh, please do. In fact, I would suggest going back a couple of times, because there is depth of content there that will take you multiple visits to digest, but it is absolutely worth it. Uh, and we're thrilled to see our attendance uh, rise to such an occasion and to, to see so many new people coming to experience the history of Virginia through that exhibit. Uh, and for uh, Dr. Cruz's uh, involvement, we're very appreciative. He's also the author of several books, including Field to Factory, Afro-American Migration, 1915 to 1940, also Black Life in Secondary Cities, a Comparative Analysis of the Black Communities of Camden and Elizabeth, New Jersey, 1860 to 1920, and most recently, and what he's here to talk about today, Thurgood Marshall, A Life in American History, which uh, is forthcoming, I'm told, uh, later in September. So you'll all have to come back uh, to get your copies. We'll make sure to get some signed for you. Uh, but it's really my uh, privilege to welcome Dr. Spencer Crew, and if you all would please join me in a very warm welcome. Good afternoon. I appreciate you all coming out to listen to this presentation. I have to say, as I start this, that this journey in terms of learning more about Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall has been an interesting one for me. Um, I'm not of the generation who grew up with him during his time with the NAACP. I'm sort of that generation that followed. So my recollection of him is certainly as the uh, justice at the Supreme Court and uh, a justice who seemed to be very unhappy most of the time. And I was trying to understand why that was <laughs> and what motivated that. But as I did more and more ex uh, examination of his life and what he had gone through, it became clear why that's the case. And what I want to do today is to sort of share that story with you. Because while I think knowing that he's the first African-American Supreme Court justice, He's also the first African-American Solicitor General, and many other firsts that he was a part of. What really is important about his life for us to understand are his years at the NAACP, because that's the foundation that lies for his recognition in these other areas. So what I'll do today is spend more of my time talking about his early life and early accomplishments so we can put his time on the Supreme Court into perspective and put into better perspective why he's considered such an important icon in the history of this country. The Supreme Court is part of it, but it's only a small part of what he's about. So today we're gonna to take a story, uh, take a journey, and learn the story of Thurgood Marshall. I'm gonna take a little drink, because I'm a little raspy here. <coughs> so 
So let's begin. As, we, as I said, what he's most well known for is his time as a justice on the Supreme Court and the many court rulings he was a part of, the way he tried to shape the thinking of the court and to shape their decisions in a way, for him, which, what was most important was that the rights of the little people were protected and not lost and not overcome in the um, desire to have law and order and the things that were very much a part of the, the environment in the time that he was there. But this has a lot to do with how he is raised and how he's directed to see the world. And it begins with his birth in Baltimore, Maryland in 1908. And this is a picture of the young Thurgood Marshall. You don't see a lot of those. And he's a cute baby. <laughs> and it was a good thing and a bad thing. First of all, we should understand that he's born in Baltimore, Maryland. And the Urban League did a study of Baltimore, Maryland in the 1930s, and they decided that it was the most segregated city in the country. So you have to understand in the environment in which he's raised. Also, his family who's there, both his grandparents and grandmother on both his father's side and his mother's side, were longtime Baltimore residents and activists in the city. One of his grandfathers was well known for having led protests against the police there for their mistreatment of local residents. His mother was a teacher in the school system, and his father was a, uh, worked a lot in the, uh, in the service sector. But his father, as you can see, was a very strong-willed and very proud man. It cost him a number of jobs along the way because he was not one who took stuff from other people. Discrimination and, and bad language and improper language were not things that he, f he found acceptable. And he was not afraid to tell people when they were wrong. In fact, he was so well recognized, and I should say respected, that the local policeman who was his friend, whenever he came to the house, would not just uh, assume he could walk in, he knocked to get permission to come in because he knew what kind of temper that his father had. And this point of view, this reluctance to accept mistreatment was instilled into Thurgood Marshall. In fact, his father said, if someone calls you that inward, you have my permission to fight. In fact, you better fight, because we're not going to accept that. So I said this was instilled also to Thurgood by way of their dinner table, that at the dinner table, his father and his mother insisted that he and his brother, if they had any opinions, any ideas, had to have well-thought-through reasoned thoughts as to why they were seeing things in that way. And if they couldn't reason it out very well, it was not accepted. And Thurgood Marshall often said that it was his, his father who helped begin to train him to be a lawyer even before he knew that that was going to be the, uh, the way of his life. Uh, in terms of schooling, Marshall was, went to school in the Baltimore Colored School System. He was a very smart student, but not a very self-disciplined student. He enjoyed his friends. He enjoyed having a good time. As a, as a result, he got into trouble very often. He was a cut up in class. In fact, he often got in trouble and uh, had to go to the principal's office. And one of the, the punishments the principal gave him was he said, you have to go down to the bottom of the school, to the basement, take a copy of the Constitution with you, and don't come back up until you've learned by heart a section of the Constitution. Interesting, because at the time, Marshall said he thought it was the worst punishment he could ever get. <laughs> But when he became a lawyer, he thought, wow, I really understand this document and what it's supposed to do, and understood how to apply it. So this punishment really helped shape who this person was. Well, in high school, he's also an athlete, and he's a member of the debate team. And all these things help to shape who he is as well. When he graduates, not at the top of his class, but not at the bottom of the class either, he decides he wants to go to college. And the issue is, where is he going to college? His brother, Aubrey, who's older, is already going to Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. And they decide that he will go there as well. His brother is studying to be a doctor. And his mother wants her son to be a doctor or a dentist, too. What mother doesn't want her son to be a doctor, right? <laughs> Thurgood wasn't sure about that, but he thought, at least let me give it a try. Now, it's interesting that Lincoln is often referred to as the black Princeton. And it was called that because most of the faculty were graduates of Princeton University. Its school colors were the colors of Princeton. Anybody know Princeton school colors? Black and orange. Are you Princeton grads? Oh, I went to Rutgers. Good man. <laughs> yeah, 
We know there's a school down the street, but we don't call the name of it exactly. exactly. <laughs> and there he sort of begins to follow the same pattern he followed while he was in high school. That was, he was an okay student, but he enjoyed college life very much and got in trouble a couple of times along the way. What changed his life, though, is that um, he met a young woman, a young woman by the name of Vivian Burry, Burry who went to the University of Pennsylvania. Her father was a well-known caterer in Philadelphia, and uh, she'd gone to many of the, the better schools. Uh, Vivian's point of view was that he, he needed to be a more serious student, and she began to rein in his desires to party and do other kinds of things, and it did improve and, and improve his um, accomplishments in the classroom. They do bond very quickly and very quickly become inseparable. And this inseparability, I think, helps him to get more studious as a student and more focused about what he wants to do when he grows older. So they become so inseparable that at first they say, well, we will get married after I graduate. Then they said, well, maybe we'll get married when we're juniors. They finally got married just after their sophomore year. <laughs> So that was a very, I think, a very strong bond, a very important bond for his life. As I said, she sort of changes his habits, and he graduates in a much uh, higher uh, number in terms of the graduating class at Lincoln. But then the question becomes, what do I do next? Well, his chances of going to medical school have gone down the drain, because his first year there, he got into an argument, as he would, with the biology teacher who failed him. And in that case, he figured, I need to figure out something else. And what he did do while he was at Lincoln was he got engaged with the debate team there as well and did very well with them. In fact, he became captain of the debate team as a sophomore. So he's really very good at logic and uh, offering his point of view. So when he leaves Lincoln, he decides, what I want to do is I'm going to go to law school. But remember, he's in Baltimore. He's in Maryland. And the problem is, is that the best law school in Maryland is the University of Maryland Law School. But the challenge is that they had not admitted an African-American to that school since 1889. So his chances of getting to that school were slim at best. And as he talks to a number of people about th those possibilities, uh, even African-American lawyers, they say, really don't have much of a chance to get in there. They're just not going to change their ways. So what he does instead is he decides he's going to go to Howard University. Now, the other advantage of having gone to law school in Maryland was that if he stayed at home, he could just catch a trolley down the street right to the law school. Instead, he decides he's going to go to Howard Law School. Now, this is a big step because at the time, Howard Law School is a night school. And it's a school in which people who are working during the daytime would go at night to get their law degree. But as a consequence, it also was a law school that was not very well supported by the, fac by the administration in Howard or by Congress, who by law is one of his primary financial supporters. So it didn't have a great reputation. And uh, um, Marshall was sort of unhappy about having to make that choice, but he wanted to go to law school. Fortunately for him, what's happening is that by the time that he goes there, the law school is beginning to change. And it's changing because of the arrival of this man, Charles Hamilton Houston. He is in the process of rethinking and remaking the law school at Howard. His belief is that Howard had to become the place in which the best African-American lawyers are trained and made ready to go out into their careers, and that their careers had to have a purpose. Their careers had to be shaped not towards making a living, but helping to change the landscape of America around the issues of race. And how do we make the laws work more fairly for everyone who's a citizen of this country? Uh, to change the law school, what he does is he first of all changes it from a night school to a day school, which causes a minor rebellion because it had been a way for a lot of people to transform their lives from um, working during the day to becoming lawyers and having a better life. But it was important to do because what he wanted to do was to make sure the law school was accredited by the, the places that did that. And to do that, it had to be a day school. He also became very tough on the students that went there. He's famous for having said, and you've probably heard this in other situations, the first year that um, Margaret Marshall was there, what Houston says to the students sitting there, I think there are 20 of them, he says, look to your left, look to your right, a year from now, half of you will not be here. And he was serious. He was tough, and he was demanding. And he also put in a rule that said that any teacher could take away half a grade from a student just because they wanted to. 
And the idea to do that was that you had to work hard to make sure that your grades are up. Because if you lost a half grade, you didn't want to fall down to the next level. So his whole idea is how do I begin to hone a sense of responsibility, a sense of discipline in these students. He also has a point of view that African-American uh, lawyers had to be social engineers, that their task was to begin to change the society, change the laws that, uh, the way, in the way that it operated to ensure that the laws were applied fairly. So this was the mantra he had and the repeated thoughts he would drum into these students. Marshall loved this and became a devotee of Houston and his ideas. And he also became a much more st serious student, keeping in mind that he had to commute down on the train every day to uh, law school, took the train back, worked for a couple of hours, and then studied for law school. But at the end, he graduated at the top of his class at Howard University and really embraced the idea of becoming a lawyer. When he leaves Howard, the next issue is, where do I find work and how do I become a lawyer? Interestingly enough, um, Houston had a PhD in law from Harvard University. And he was able to finagle an opportunity for, for Marshall to go to Harvard University to get the same PhD. Marshall turns it down. He says, I want to be a lawyer, a practicing lawyer now, not go off to school and do other kinds of things. So he goes back to Baltimore, moves back in with his parents, takes the law school, uh, the, the, the bar exam, passes it, and then begins to practice law. But it's not an easy life for him because for African-American lawyers in the Depression, there, wasn't a lot, there weren't a lot of clients out there to be had. So what he does along with sort of scrambling around trying to find clients is he begins to get involved in the local NAACP in Baltimore. And there he works particularly with a campaign they are running against some of the local grocery stores originally to say that here we are, the key clients who come to your store, the majority of clients who buy things in your store, and you refuse to hire anyone as clerks or workers in your store. So what we're going to do is start this boycott saying, telling people don't go to a store and give them your money if they won't allow you or someone like you to work there. So it's a, call, a don't buy where you can't work campaign. And Marshall becomes the unofficial lawyer for them. He goes downtown and he talks to the police station to figure out what was accept acceptable to try to prevent people from having to get arrested. And he does a pretty good job with it. And initially, they're very successful. A couple of the grocery stores, the ANP and a couple of others, finally change their policies and begin to hire African Americans. They try it downtown, but that falls flat because the owners of those stores refuse to change, go to court, and have the, the uh, picketing broken up. But it, it does allow him to continue to work with the NAACP, uh, even though it's the local one. And it also raises his profile in terms of his um, recognition in, at the national office. And this is important because Houston has left Howard. And he's left Howard to go to work at the NAACP in the main offices in New York. And so he's keeping an eye out for his protege and trying to make sure that if an opportunity shows itself that he can take advantage of it. One of the things that he does when they first, when after, right after Howard le Marshall leaves Howard, is Houston invites him to go on a trip with him through the South. And the task is to go down and to view and record educational conditions for African-American children in the South. And this is a heart-rendering, very uh, painful experience for both he and for Houston. Keep in mind that Marshall is raised in the South in Baltimore, Maryland, is familiar with segregated schools, but not familiar with schools in this kind of condition. And as they traveled throughout the South during this time, more and more they struck by this disparity in the kind of treatment that's uh, accorded. In fact, one of the stories he talks about that emphasizes this is that they uh, are in one school district where there is a school abandoned for use for white students filled with brand new furniture, brand new uh, uh, um, equipment down the street from an African-American school like the one you see at the bottom. The school system refuses to allow the African-American students to use the building or to have access to those um, desks and other kind of equipment. So it just reinforces for them how the system of segregation works so unfairly and denies these students and children the chance for a good education and opportunity.
because as we know, opportunity education is an important stepping stone to opportunity in the society. Out of this, what they then do is to record this. There's actually film that exists of what they have done. There are um, reports that were done. And it gets the NAACP to decide that they need to craft a strategy to attack this issue. And what they begin to do is to look at the issue of the idea of separate but equal. This emerges out of a Supreme Court decision back in 1896, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. And basically what the court has said is that separate but equal is fine as long as it is separate and equal. The reality is that in the application of it, it's usually separate and unequal. So what the NAACP decides to do in this new strategy is that, all right, this is the law of the land. We recognize it's the law. What we're going to do is to, in fact, make it separate and equal. And if it's not separate but e and equal, to force these school systems to bring the facilities for African-American students up to par. Back, the thought in the back of their mind is what we will be doing is forcing these systems to pay extra money to t create uh, parallel systems with the belief that over time it will be so expensive, so costly, so oppressive that they'll eventually decide that desegregation is probably much more better, is much better than uh, segregation as a way of uh, doing it. The first case that they initiate along these lines is in Maryland itself. And it's at a place where Marshall is extremely happy that he can initiate this case. It's against the University of Maryland Law School. <laughs> he finds a graduate of Amherst uh, University, or Amherst College at the time, uh, uh, Donald Murray, who is a, um, uh, a, a, a top graduate of that school who wants to go to law school, who lives in Baltimore. He applies to the University of Maryland, and as has been the case in the past, they say, thank you, but no thank you. You're not welcome here. They do offer him some money to maybe go to a different law school, but he says, no, I want to go to law school here. And once they reject him, then uh, uh, Marshall gets involved in the case, and you can imagine how happy he was to do this. <laughs> what they say is that uh, they have to provide separate and equal law school education in Maryland. Because if uh, Murray wants to practice law in Maryland, the advantage of taking go to school there is that you get contacts, you understand the law there better, and it makes you a more effective and a better connected lawyer. And so they demand that, in fact, the law school has to accept them. Well, this goes to court. And eventually what happens at the state Supreme Court level is that they rule that, indeed, the law school has to admit Murray because they do not, in fact, provide separate and equal facilities. It's a huge victory for Murray. It's a huge victory for the NAACP, and a huge victory for Thurgood Marshall. The key is to make sure that Murray successfully goes to law school, which he does. But it also keeps Marshall on the, uh, the screen of the NAACP. And about that time, Houston, who is in New York, has need of an assistant. And he then lobbies for and is able to hire Thurgood Marshall as his assistant there at the, Supreme, at, at the NAACP. And they then begin their strategy to force schools to be separate and equal. Their decision is that we want to focus this on schools of higher education, graduate schools and colleges, because they think starting off in elementary schools is just too touchy a subject. That's a, they'll create more resistance than it's worth. So they start with graduate schools, and they start with law schools. And the first law school they look at is the law school at the University of Missouri. And they get a gentleman um, by the name of Lloyd Gaines to apply to go to that law school. And they work their way through the courts and eventually get a victory. The problem is that when it's time for Lloyd Gaines to begin the process of um, applying to the school, he disappears. In the interim, he'd gone off to University of Michigan to get a master's degree. And uh, a few days before he's supposed to go back to Missouri, they say he goes down to the front desk and says, I'm going to go out to get some groceries, and never comes back. To this day, we don't know what happened to him. Now, there are lots of theories. One theory is that he 
might have been bribed and uh, convinced not to come back. He might have been waylaid along the way. Or he may have just decided that he didn't want to put up with this at all. The problem for the NAACP was that without gains, the, court, the case fell apart, which means they had to start all over again to go through the courts to get this kind of a decision. And what it did for, I think, for Houston and for Marshall was to reinforce for them the idea that we need to make sure we think very carefully about who we get as our person to represent us. Because if that person disappears, all of our work is for nothing. But they do decide to continue to go forward. And they bring cases uh, against Oklahoma and Texas seeking, again, to challenge separate but, but, um, but equal. And in this instance, they get, they get this young woman you see here, um, her, her last, um, I've forgotten her last name, but um, as the representative. And she is a perfect, a perfect person to do this job. She's very smart, uh, did very well in her college, and she says, I'm going to stay the course. I'm not going to step away. So they have parallel courses, ta uh, cases taking place in Oklahoma and in Texas. And what happens is that they are able, working their way through the courts, losing at the state and Supreme Court state level, but with the idea that what we really want to do in the long run anyway is to have these cases go to the Supreme Court. Because the short um, problem with the Maryland case is that it's decided at the state level. So it means this applies throughout the state of Maryland, but it doesn't have national application. If you go to the Supreme Court and have them rule in it, it has national app application. So the goal is to get these cases up to the Supreme Court. So when the Supreme Court rules, this now becomes the law of the land, not just the law of Oklahoma or Texas or of Maryland. So this is what happens with the Oklahoma and the Texas case, is that they're able to work their way through the courts, get to the Supreme Court, and have them rule that because these schools are not providing separate and equal education in terms of all the benefits that come with going to their law school, that they have to admit these students into their law school. Well, this is, as you can imagine, a huge victory and really brings to fruition the strategy about how do we force change. And what's interesting is, I think, the um, uh, corollaries that happen with this. As the law schools open up, it means the other graduate programs that don't have um, comparable programs in other schools in the state have to open up as well. And you're going to have more and more African-American students applying for uh, places in these locations. Along with that, they also say, well, you know, I'm a student, and I want to live on campus. I want a dormitory room. And now the schools have to figure out what that means. Then they say, well, you know, we want to go to the football games. We want to be students. And now they've got to figure out what that means. Then they say, you know, we want to go to the dances. We want to go to the social events. We want to be a part of the campus. So what happens is it is a rolling set of increasing pressures on these schools to think differently about how they operate. So in the end, it helps to create this sense of desegregation in a lot of the aspects of these schools in the midst of students uh, in ways they hadn't done before. And this is what, in fact, they had in mind the NAACP, was that we really were going to make a breakthrough in terms of admittance into a program, and then we expect that other things will change the consequence along the way. And that success is an important part of the legacy, I think, of the NAACP and of, 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 um, of Marshall. Now, but also in this process, uh, Charles Houston decides to go back to private practice. His father has a law practice. His father's getting older, and he wants to go back and help his father. Plus, as he says, I'm not making nearly enough money working for the NAACP. But that means that Marshall now rises to become the head of the legal department, the legal arm of the NAACP. This happens in 1938. And as the lead lawyer of a very small group of uh, attorneys, he begins focusing his attention on a variety of issues around civil rights in this country. And we sometimes focus so much, and I'll talk later about the Brown case as an important one, and it is, but what we overlook very often in understanding Marshall is a wide variety of other cases in which he is changing the um, landscape of this country. Under his guidance, they attack voter suppression laws in Texas, in Texas, they have what they call the white primary, the white Democratic primary. And their claim there is that this is not a um, political, governmental action, but a private group doing it. So we can exclude whoever we want from voting in these primaries. 
The problem is in Texas, whoever wins the Democratic primary wins the election. So by excluding African Americans, you are preventing them from having a chance to vote and influence who's in office. And just to keep in mind is that why that's so important is that if you're not voting for who's in office, they don't care what your issues are. They don't have to worry about your concerns. Uh, they're not influenced in terms of how they make decisions. So having the chance to vote, having the chance to have influence is tied to this getting the chance to vote. So he's able to, through the courts, overturn the idea of these primaries and voter suppression laws in Texas. In addition, he is involved in uh, attacks on jury pools in which African Americans are excluded from the right to be on juries in which they're being uh, tried, the idea that you have to be tried by a jury of your peers. Also, he's involved in cases, oh, here we go, cases that have to do with restrictive covenants and uh, housing discrimination. And also, he's involved in the famous case here in Virginia, which is the Irene Morgan case. Irene Morgan is traveling on a bus um, coming south and actually sits in the colored section of the bus. But as they're traveling south, the bus starts to fill up. And it fills up to the case when a white passenger gets on, the bus driver says, give up your seat and, and move back. And she says, wait a minute, I'm in the colored section. I shouldn't have to give up my seat. He stops the bus, causing the police, and they drag her off the bus. But she then goes to court, backed by the NAACP. And the ruling from the Supreme Court in the end is that interstate commerce cannot, uh, segregation cannot be applied in interstate commerce. Because one, it puts an old, uh, uh, undue burden on the company doing that, and that we have already ruled against segregation in interstate commerce. So she wins the case. Along with that, the, um, inter the, um, the, the Commerce Commission also says that, in fact, desegregation needs to be a part of buses going between states. Keep in mind, this is in the 1940s, almost a decade before Rosa Parks. And it's another important case, I think, in terms of understanding the impact and the importance of what Thurgood Marshall wanted to do. Now, the other part of what I learned, and it just uh, struck me as obvious, but not something we think about all the time, is the fact that in doing this, Marshall traveled all over the country. And he didn't travel in a big limousine or in a jet or private jet plane. They didn't exist then. But instead, he would travel by himself, by train to different places, then by private car to small towns in the backwoods. And he did this at great jeopardy of his own life. He often would talk about uh, going to a small town, staying in the home of an individual in a room that's set aside for him, and sort of lay, laying uh, half awake most of the night, fearful that the Klan or someone else might show up and decide to lynch him. And in fact, in many of the places where he would go, they would have local residents sit as armed guards outside the house for, you know, during the time that he's there. Or they'd move him from house to house to make sure that people didn't know exactly where he was from day to day to day. Keep in mind, the reason for this is that local officials weren't too happy to have this outsider, an African-American, come in and act like a real lawyer, to question them, to argue against what they're saying, to say they were wrong, to say they're doing things improperly, which went, went, went against local standards, local, local ways of doing things. And so there was a desire to sort of teach this person a lesson. And this fear that he had was real. In fact, he tells a story once of just having finished, finishing, having won a case in um, Tennessee. And as they were driving from Tennessee to Nashville, where he's going to catch a train, they're stopped by the police. And the police accuse them and him of driving drunk. Now, he's not driving the car, but they try to accuse him of driving drunk. Uh, they stop him once, can't find anything, let him go, stop him a second time, tell Thurgood Marshall to get in the car with them and tell his friends to drive off. They then drive him down a back road down to a riverside where there are a group of people standing. And Marshall's thinking, my time is up. Fortunately for him, his friends in the other car did not do what they were told, but instead followed and sort of made it clear that they were there and were watching. And the police, rather than implicate themselves in this, decided instead to allow Marshall to go back to meet the local judge, hoping the judge would say he was driving drunk and they could put him in jail, and then they could sort of mistreat him there. But the judge, in fact, says, I can tell a person who's been drinking just by smelling their breath. He smells 
of Marshall's breath and says, this man's not been drinking, let him go. And so he's put back in the car with his friends, goes to a person's house. The next day, they send a decoy car off in one direction and he goes in another direction. The group follows the decoy car. When they find out he's not in the car, they beat the person driving the car to the point that he's in the hospital for a month. So this is the kind of terror and intimidation that Marshall faces on a regular basis. But he says that I understand this and I am certainly afraid, but I'm not the one with the real courage. The people with the courage are the people in those communities who are willing to speak up, who are willing to go against tradition and have to stay there after I live, leave. And if they are willing to do that, I'm willing to sort of risk myself in the, in the, in the hope that we can create change in the process. So this aspect of his life is something that not always comes out clearly when we think about Thurgood Marshall, but it helps to explain why he's so well-respected and so admired by so many people during this time period. And also why he's often referred to as Mr. Civil Rights because of what he's willing to do. In fact, people would say that, um, that if they needed something changed, they expected change to happen, that if they could say Thurgood's coming, that in fact things were going to change and get better. And I love this picture because it feels like here comes Thurgood to the rescue. That's right. <laughs> young, bold, and confident. And I think that's how you wanted to think about him during this time period. The most important case for him is the case of Brown versus the Board of Education. And what's important about this is that, if you recall, as we talked about his efforts previous to this, the focus was largely on making separate but equal, separate and equal for sure, but without going against the whole idea that segregation is wrong. Brown versus the Board of Education changes that strategy. The idea now is that we believe that it's time to directly attack Plessy versus Ferguson and separate but equal, and to say that uh, that is, in fact, unconstitutional and unfair to individuals. And they pick this, the Brown case, although there's four other cases that go with it that get lost. But the Brown case is helpful because um, his daughter here, I think it's Brenda is her name, I'm, I'm sorry for forgotten, um, has the school systems in Topeka, Kansas are in fact separate and equal. But she's not allowed to go to the white school two blocks from her house, but instead has to walk across railroad tracks, wait for a bus, catch a bus, gets to school early, has to wait outside in the cold for half an hour for the school to open before she can go to school every day. And if any of you have lived in, tech, in Kansas, you know the winters can be pretty brutal. So this is really a hardship for her. And her father is not happy with this, so this case is a way of testing the idea is that separate and equal still does not make for equal education. And this case uh, becomes their benchmark for testing whether the Supreme Court was ready to overturn the whole idea of separate but equal. And as we all know, the outcome is, in, is, is indeed that the courts do rule in their favor and say that separate but equal, um, but equal has no place in this country, and then pushes for the desegregation of schools with all deliberate speed. Now, it would be nice to say that that's the end of the story, and everybody was happy thereafter, and the world was perfect. It wasn't, as you can imagine. And part of the challenge is that there is very strong resistance throughout the South that emerges around this. In fact, in Virginia, we're very famous for the idea of massive resistance and closing down schools rather than allowing desegregation to happen. But probably the case that gets the most attention is the one that takes place in Little Rock, Arkansas, where the governor puts the National Guard in front of the school to prevent the school children, Little Rock Nine, from going to school there. And it's not until pressure is brought to bear by Thurgood Marshall and others on the president at the time, Eisenhower, who is very reluctant to get involved. But when the courts finally say you have to stop letting letting the military prevent this from happening and open the schools, when the governor of uh, Arkansas, Arkansas refuses to do this again, as a military person and a person who believes in you obey your orders, Eisenhower sends in the troops. As a consequence, these students are allowed to go to the school and eventually Little Rock High School is desegregated. While this is a great victory and a very positive step forward in the career and the life of Thurgood Marshall, it's also a time of tragedy for him. Because right after the Supreme Court decision, what he finds out is that his wife, Vivian, 
has been very ill and she's been hiding it from him. And it turns out she has cancer. And uh, shortly after that case, within a year of that case, she dies. And he spends many of the months after the case is decided at her bedside trying to care for her. And he said the most painful part of it was watching her slowly fade away. So for him, while he has this great victory and highlight in his life on the right hand, he has this very deep, deep valley in the other hand that he has to, to work through. Um, eventually, though, after her death, he remarries and eventually is able to have children. The one, I think, gap in the lives of he and Vivian was the fact they never had children. And I think it, it hurt both of them very much. So when he remarries, he's very excited with the fact that, and in fact, his new wife is able to have children. And um, he's fulfilled in that fashion. So it's, uh, it's sort of a roller coaster time for him in the years after the, the, the Supreme Court decision. What also happens, though, is that as you get into the 1950s, what emerges is what's often referred to as the modern civil rights movement. And essentially, it means that you have a revival of tactics and ideas to try to cause change in this nation, but not so much trying to do it through the courts, but instead using this idea put forward by Rosa Parks and by Thurgood Marshall of um, passive resistance and nonviolent change. And their idea is that there are good laws and there are bad laws, and the bad laws you resist. And you resist by going against them, protesting, sit-ins, all kinds of things to direct attention to the issue and hopefully changing the hearts of those individuals or changing the hearts of the nation. The problem for Marshall is that essentially in doing this, King and others are breaking the law. And Marshall, as a lawyer, is a person who believes in the law. He believes that change happens by changing the law, not by disrespecting it. So for him, while he certainly is glad with the changes, he's not a big fan of, of, of Martin Luther King Jr. He thinks that his tactics are wrong and are just exposing people to more violence and more uh, um, pain in different kinds of ways. So what this does for Marshall is to make him begin to think that maybe it's time for me to think about a different path for my life, that I've been in the middle of the civil rights activities for a long time. There's a new generation coming along, and perhaps my time is to do something else. You know, part of it is like Houston. He's been going around the clock for probably two decades, around the clock dedicated to this, not making very much money. His family just sort of limping along, and it's time to think about how do I, in my later years, I mean, we're in the 50s. He's born in 1908. He's in his late 40s, early 50s. What do I do with the next part of my life? So what happens is that he's um, um, called by the Kennedys. Uh, um, John F. Kennedy is now the president, who has talked to him about civil rights in the past, and is offered the job as the um, district court judge in the District of New York. And um, he accepts. He leaves the NAACP and accepts that uh, offer. Now, it's not a, a, an easy process because as he's applying for this job, or not applying for the job, but it's going up for nomination, there are members of the Senate who are on that committee judging him who don't want him, don't want him to be in the Supreme Court on a couple of levels. First of all, they don't want an African-American on the Supreme Court. They just think it's a travesty. And if there is going to be an African-American, they certainly don't want Thurgood Marshall. He has been the sort of the, uh, the pain in their back for years and years and years in terms of the changes he's forcing around civil rights and desegregation throughout the South. And they don't want him to be rewarded for that. So what happens is that his nomination process is a long, drawn-out one in which they find all kind of strange things to try to spring to show that he's not qualified. Well, eventually, as you can see, I love the note on the right, and, uh, which is sent to um, the Kennedy group, saying, how long are we going to put up with this? Because it goes on for almost a year. Um, and that they say that we need to stop this. I mean, Marshall is being a saint in the middle of all this. But in fact, something needs to be done. So eventually, though, fortunately, he is uh, nominated and then uh, affirmed to get this job as a a judge in the district court, the circuit court in New York. Now, this is a big change in Marshall's life, and a positive change. He's, he's now a judge for life, which means he's guaranteed a salary for life.
But it's interesting, there's also a change for the way in which things are done in the circuit court in New York. They've never had an African-American judge there. In fact, they've never had an African-American to work there except as a janitor. So to have Thurgood Marshall show up is a surprise and an adjustment. And he laughs with a little joke he had. He said that uh, early on, the key judge, the head judge there decides he's going to have a picture of all the judges together. And Marshall arrives a little late. While they're setting up and the photographer's setting up, he wants to put up lights and they find they have an electrical problem. So one of the secretaries calls the electrician to send somebody down. Well, Marshall walks in and she presumes that he's one of the electricians. <laughs> Only to be, you know, sort of uh, herself personally embarrassed that she did this. Marshall later laughs and says that she she must have been crazy because to think that an African American could be in the electrical union in New York was outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way he approached things. I think he understood that you um, people make mistakes and you want to give them a chance to sort of work through it. And he understands that he's he's breaking ground. And in breaking ground, you need to make it easier for people to make that adjustment. So he then becomes the uh, lawyer there, I mean, the, the judge there, which is important because it exposes him to areas of law that weren't his expertise. He has to learn about maritime law. He has to learn about business law. He has to learn about corporate law. And all these are cases that he hears and has to write about that allows his breadth of knowledge to broaden. He does this for two years. And then as he says he's having lunch one day, and one of the clerks comes down and says, uh, there's a phone call for you. And he says, you know not to disturb me over my lunch. And he says, well, the president's on the phone. He says, the president of what? <laughs> he says, the president of the United States. And it's, and it's uh, Johnson on the phone. And he wants to nominate Marshall to be the first African-American solicitor general. Now, this is an important step because it's the first. And what Johnson says is he wants children, black and white, who go to the Supreme Court to go there to see an African-American man arguing cases for the Solicitor General. Understand what the Solicitor General's job is, is to decide what cases will go before the Supreme Court, in which cases the United States government will argue on the side or against that case. So it's a key, key job. And he's the very first one to be in that position. And um, what we suspect, and I think as the researchers sort of pointed out, is that Johnson is grooming him for the next step. Marshall is Solicitor General for, I think, two years. And during that time, he wins 14 of the 19 cases that he brings before the Supreme Court, which is a pretty good record. His predecessor was fantastic, so the comparison is tough. But he does very well. And in fact, over his entire career, Marshall argues more cases before the Supreme Court than any other lawyer in history. So he has a real connection to that place and understanding of what takes place there and how to work there. In 1967, Johnson nominates him for the Supreme Court to be the first African-American justice of the Supreme Court. And he wins that appointment to the, to the court. It doesn't take as much time as it took under the Kennedys, in large part because Johnson's a much better politician. <laughs> He's been in the Senate for a long time. He knows the ins and outs. He knows how to twist arms. He twists arms very well. He knows how to threaten. He knows how to make promises. And he makes sure that this is not a prolonged, year-long process. It's actually, when they finally have the hearings, they take maybe a couple of hours, and he moves along, although again, there are efforts along the way to try to slow it down. Um, they said that uh, one of the Southern senators decides to ask Marshall, well, who are, what's the name of the people who helped Jefferson write the um, Constitution? And Marshall says, well, I don't know. I have to go back and look into that. And then another senator says, well, can you tell us who it is? And the guy says, uh, no, I don't know, but I'll check. So it's that kind of thing where they're trying to trip him up on trivia, trying to show that he doesn't know enough about the government. But he works through this and becomes the um, a justice of the Supreme Court. And when he, when he um, gets there, oh, sorry. When he, he gets there, his early years are very pleasant ones because he goes there as part of the Earl Warren Court. Earl, Earl Warren is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court who orchestrates the Brown versus the Board of Education ruling. 
And so it's a court in which they're very much concerned with the rights of the little people, of the poor, of the disfranchised, of minorities, of women, and of others. So Marshall is coming into a court that's very much in tune with the things that he worked for and fought for as a lawyer for the NAACP. And he has lots of cases where he has a chance to really uh, reinforce these early rulings to make sure that they more and more become a law of the land. In fact, his favorite case during this time period is a case uh, with, called Barber versus Page. And essentially what happens is that an individual is tried and found guilty without having a chance to face his, his accuser. And what Marshall and the court says is you have to send him back because part of what the Constitution says is you have a right to face your accuser and to question him. The issue was that the person who accused him was in jail and the state refused to allow him to come out of jail to come to court to testify. And the Supreme Court says, take it back, do it again, because the right to uh, confront your accuser is an essential right of an American citizen. And these are the kinds of things that they essentially often would uh, push forward as a way of protecting the rights of individuals who might otherwise be left out. So I say, as I said, the, the first few years of his life in the Supreme Court are really very positive, very pleasant. He has most friends. His best friend there is um, William Brennan, uh, Supreme Court Justice. They become like um, blood brothers almost in terms of their point of view, the way they ruled, and how they uh, got along together. The difficulty is that as he comes on the court, those who were there initially begin to retire and go away. And the big blow is when Earl Warren decides to retire and is replaced um, by Berger. And Berger is much more conservative to be expected because he's appointed by Richard Nixon. And the point of view of the country is moving away from supporting desegregation, moving away from protecting the rights of individuals against law enforcement and other kinds of ideas. The idea that, that um, law enforcement um, uh, is more important than the rights of individuals in some instances. And as Berger comes on and others, people retire, more and more those who are appointed to the court are much more conservative, conservative in their point of view. And for Marshall, this is very painful because this point of view, this conservative point of view, he believes is working to undermine everything he stood for as a lawyer at the NAACP. They're undermining the desegregation efforts. They're undermining um, a variety of other issues of protection under the, uh, in the courts that were things that he fought for to make sure that, again, uh, minorities and others were protected. And so what you have happened is he becomes, I would say, less and less happy, more and more surly, more and more angry about what's going on. And as he said, his life during those last years becomes writing uh, op opposing points of views. Uh, when the court would rule positively one way, he would write the alternative point of view because he felt at least it would be on the record it would be a, a way of illustrating what's going on. Um, I, it's actually a case here in Virginia, uh, here in Richmond, that he looks at in which the Richmond government has said that in order to get a, a, co a, a contract here, a company would have to have a minority firm connected with it one way or another. This is taken to the courts by one firm that is not able to get a minority firm to work, work with them, and they say this is not constitutional, despite the fact the Supreme Court had said that years before. This new court says, in fact, no, you don't have to do this any longer. We no longer think that that has to be the case, despite the fact that what the city of Richmond had said is that we have this long history of denying access to contracts in our city for minority and women contractors. But the court says, we don't have to worry about that any longer. So as you can imagine, this also illustrates to Marshall the change in the court and what he believes is an undermining of all the things the Warren Court and he believed the nation and the Constitution stood for. So he continued to write these dissenting points of view. Uh, as he goes along, he's in the Supreme Court for 24 years. And in the last, I'd say, five years or so, the struggle becomes more and more him feeling as an outcast and an outlier to all the things they stand for. And he begins to give a lot of speeches around the country in which he sort of castigates the members of the court for their conservatism. And probably the most important speech he gives is in the uh, state of Hawaii on a commemoration of the 100th and 50th anniversary of the Constitution, 125th, I think. And what he argues is that while everyone is celebrating the Constitution in its original form, he says that, in fact, you shouldn't be doing that, that the original Constitution is flawed, 
because essentially it excludes a whole swath of people from rights and citizenship. And though what's wonderful about the Constitution is the fact that it's evolved over time. And in its evolution, it's become more and more of a democratic document. And he's saying this in part against uh, lawyers and legal minds that believe in a very strict construction interpretation of the Constitution, which is they believe that you can only look at the Constitution in terms of how they think the founding fathers saw it at their time. Marshall and Warren and others argue that, in fact, that's not the case, that it is a living, breathing document that changes over time, and you need to interpret it as it changes over time and how it would apply in the world in which you live. That clash is what I think really um, is what makes Marshall feel so much out of sync with and angry about what's taking place. The problem he has is that as time goes on, his health begins to fail. His eyesight goes, his hearing goes, and some have argued that his memory begins to disappear as well. So eventually what he decides to do is that it's time for him to retire. And he decides to do that in um, 1991 uh, because of his Ill, Ill health and retires to his home where slowly but surely over time his health continues to um, decline. Eventually, two years later, after his resignation, on, on January 24th, 1993, he dies at the age of 85. His coffin is placed in state at the Supreme Court building, and it's estimated that 18,000 people line up to march past his coffin, remembering him as Supreme Court Justice, but also remembering him as Mr. Civil Rights. I think as we want to begin to sum up the life of Thurgood Marshall, it's important to recognize his time on the Supreme Court it's important to recognize his time as Solicitor General of the United States because those are important firsts in his life. But I think what's even more important to remember about Thurgood Marshall is his time as a lawyer of the NAACP because he is instrumental and vital to changing the racial and the citizenship landscape of this nation, ensuring that everyone or more people have access to all the rights of citizenship guaranteed in the Constitution. And this work, I think, it should be the standard by which he's judged. He helps to reshape this landscape. And his ideas that separate and equal should be the key way this nation operates, so, uh, I think, illustrates the fact that this nation would be much different had he not been here. So when we think of Thurgood Marshall, I think it's important to remember all he's done and to believe, which I do, that this country is a much better place a much warmer place, a much more egalitarian place because of his work and because of his, uh, his accomplishments. And this for me is what I learned about Thurgood Marshall and why I think of him in a much different way, but a much more admiring way than I did when I started this journey. Uh, so I thank you for the opportunity to share this experience with you and learn more about this man. Are we going to do questions? OK. What do you think Marshall would feel about what's going on in the NAACP in Virginia right now with their um, sort of inability to pull themselves together in their governance? He'd be, I think he would be saddened because of all that the NAACP stood for when he was there. But on the other hand, I think he would understand that there are um, ups and downs in that process, and not every uh, state or organization is going to be at top notch all the time, and that there, that change could be for the better. So um, I, I think he'd be understanding. He'd probably want to come down and talk to people and try to help him think about next steps. Yes. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to ask you, did he um, ever talk about or make any attempts to mentor um, some younger attorneys to get them to carry on his work? And how did that go? Oh, absolutely, he does. There are a whole 
group of them who worked under him, many of them became judges because of what they done with the NAACP. Um, yeah, he, he's a person who believes in nurturing and helping others come along the way. So he does do that and he does talk about that. And the other thing that um, re reinforces that is that as a Supreme Court justice, his, uh, the people he would bring in to work with him as clerks all felt that it was a special, special experience that he shared so much with them and opened their eyes up to ideas and issues they might not have thought about before. So I think that is another, another illustration of his mentoring mentality. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you all. <laughs>